Welcome to the Center for Investment Excellence, a production of J.P. Morgan Asset Management. The Center for Investment Excellence is an audio podcast that provides educational insights across asset classes and investment themes. Today's episode is the future of fixed income and is for institutional and professional investors. I'm David Lebowitz, Global Market Strategist at J.P. Morgan Asset Management, and I'll be your moderator for today's episode. Joining me for our discussion is Bob Michael, Chief Investment Officer and Head of Global Fixed Income Currencies and Commodities within J.P. Morgan Asset Management. Welcome to the Center for Investment Excellence. Bob, thanks for joining us. David, I'm happy to be here today. I think we might want to kick off with a question that's front of mind for many investors, given the move in rates over the past two weeks. You know, we had Jerome Powell coming out and saying, we're a long way from neutral. I think that that's created more questions than perhaps answers. What's your current thinking on the Fed and how do you see things playing out here over the next 12 to 18 months? Well, we agree with Chairman Powell. We think there's more upside to yields. Starting with the Fed, we think they're headed to 3%. So at least three more rate hikes in December, March, and June, that puts them at two and three quarters to 3%. And they'll have raised rates going back to December 2015. So that will be about three and a half years of rising rates. That's a long period of time. If I think about bond market yields, where those can go to, and we look at the 10-year, I think three and a half to 4% makes sense to us with a 3% Fed funds rate. Excellent. And so given that backdrop of steadily rising rates and a Fed which continues to hike through the middle of next year at a minimum, what are you seeing in terms of trends? What are you trying to take advantage of in portfolios? And you know, we're interested not only in, in some of the more attractive opportunities you're seeing, but also some of the things that perhaps you're shying away from in the current environment. I think certainly what's been dominant in the market with rising yields and the Fed being as hawkish as they've been and arguably relative to the past, it's not really hawkish, the yield curve has been flattening. And I think that's worried a lot of investors because they immediately associate a flattening yield curve with the onset of recession. And we think that's premature. We think that what is actually reflecting is the central banks are still in the markets with quantitative ease. As we shift over year-end to quantitative tightening, we would expect the yield curve to start to re-steepen a bit. Another thing we've noticed is the sell-off in emerging market debt. It's been very pronounced. The rest of the bond market has held in reasonably well when you look at credit. So clearly, the emerging markets are responding to the tariff scuffle between the U.S. and China and then some other countries and concern that, in fact, it might spill over into a full-blown trade war. Excellent. You know, I think that that's an important thing to take into account. And we've been spending a lot of time ourselves thinking about the trade war and the potential for this to evolve from a trade war into perhaps a war on trade in the worst case scenario. You know, EM is something that when I talk to clients, I get a little bit of the hairy eyeball at the current juncture. Can you talk a little bit more about what you're seeing and maybe touch on your views on EMFX as well and how that fits into the broader view on emerging markets? Yes. When we look at the emerging markets, the area for us that's been under the most severe pain has been local emerging market debt because bond yields have risen dramatically and currencies have sold off dramatically. So if you were a holder of emerging market debt from the start of the year, you had pretty pronounced losses of perhaps up to 10%. When we dissect the market and look at, say, a basket of Turkey, Mexico, and Brazil – 
and look at where the real yield in that market is, it's more or less doubled over the year to date. It started the year, that basket, with a real yield of about 2.5%, and it currently has a real yield of about 5%. So it's cheapened up quite a bit, both on a nominal and a real basis, and that basket of currencies is also down anywhere from five to pick your number with Turkey. As those markets have become oversold and we're hearing some stability emerge on the trade front, we think that there's room for those markets to recover. So we're starting to wade back in and assemble some positions. The other thing I should point out is at the start of the year, there were a lot of what I call tourists in the market, the crossover buyer, the buyer that was looking for yield, expecting fairly stable markets in 2018 like they enjoyed in 2017. And as the emerging markets started to sink, they effectively got washed out over the summer. So it's a pretty clean market that looks pretty cheap to us right now. Speaking of yield tourism and tying it a little bit back to the relative valuation between you know emerging market debt and on the U.S. side, the credit markets, particularly high yield, you know, a lot of folks have gone into high yield. They've stayed in high yield. It's been a bit of a darling from an asset class perspective. What are your thoughts on credit broadly, both investment grade and high yield, given the recent move in spreads? And you know, do you think that there are still legs to those trades, or do you think that investors should perhaps thinking a little bit about more defensive positioning within fixed income broadly. U.S. credit is an interesting topic right now because since the financial crisis in 2008, we've been in lockstep agreement with our equity counterparts. And basically, whatever was good for corporate America, both us and Paul Quincy and his equity team felt was good for all parts of the capital structure both the equity and the debt. And for the first time since the financial crisis, we've come to a fork in the road. If we look at the high-yield companies, we see them taking advantage of tax reform, of the fiscal spend, of the increase in consumption by doing the smart things, expanding in capex, doing a bit more hiring, trying to meet their full order book, while also trying to maintain a strong credit rating, if not trying to improve their credit rating. So all the good things you want to see as a lender to corporate America. When we look at the larger cap investment grade side, we see a different behavior. We see companies that are looking at tax reform and the windfall and looking at top line growth, which on a real basis, as you know, has been as high as it's been since the financial crisis. And they're thinking, Let's leverage the hell out of this. They're effectively tired of having spent the last 10 years taking out cost, dealing with the top line that looked pretty flat, and growing the bottom line with cost reduction. So you are starting to see things which are very shareholder-friendly, whether it's buying back more shares, raising dividends, or buying each other. All of that increases the leverage in companies It's great when it works. It's great for equity investors. But to a lender of these companies, it's not so great. And for the first time since the financial crisis, we've become more conservative on investment-grade debt. The other thing that I want to point out on high yield is it does look attractive. I know the yield on high yield is about 6.5%, and the credit spread's about 3.5%. 
I'd like to buy it at 8 to 10%, but the fundamentals are improving and there's not a lot of supply coming. In fact, last night, Mary Erdos, our CEO, sent me an email highlighting that high-yield supply will be the lowest since 2009. Just the kinds of things that keep CEOs up at night. Right, exactly. And, you know, maybe positioning back towards the investment grade side of things, you know, one thing that we've noticed in our conversations with clients is that the share of triple B rated bonds is at its highest level in the ag in, you know, a number of decades. So we think active management is going to be particularly important, not only because the composition of these indices has changed, but obviously because what these companies are doing with said capital is very different depending on where they land from a rating standpoint. And along that same vein, talking about ways of people using capital. Obviously, Italy has been front of mind for investors in the markets recently, you know, submitting a budget which doesn't necessarily align with the European Commission's targets. How do you think about the Italian debt situation? And does that really pose a risk to your underlying investment thesis? We think about it in a couple of ways. One is certainly as an investor in the government bond markets and thinking about the spread of Italy and other peripheral European countries relative to the core bond market, especially Germany, and trying to think how far can it go. I'd say more important than that is to think about where Italian debt resides. And pre-crisis, a lot of the banking system across Europe held peripheral government debt. So whether it was Italy or Spain or Greece or Portugal, they held the highest yielding government bonds because they were still getting relatively favorable capital treatment And everyone expected the European Central Bank to backstop the government bond markets, which ultimately didn't work. This time, when we look at the European banking system, we don't see that problem. We see that most of the European banks are running very clean balance sheets, that they don't have positions in Italian debt. So that gives us comfort to invest in European banks, for example, where the Italian government debt is being held is in the Italian banking system. But then again, it becomes isolated to Italy itself. And that becomes more an issue between the government and the ECB. Bringing it back full circle, you know, we started with a conversation about the Fed and where things may be headed there. You know, we've kind of worked our way around to Europe, and naturally that begs questions about the trajectory of the ECB. You know, you mentioned earlier in our conversation quantitative tightening and the fact that we're going to go from easing to tightening at the beginning of next year. You know, is this something that comes up in conversations you're having with CIOs and other investors? And what do you think the implications of quantitative tightening really are for the global bond market? Where do you think that that's going to show up the most? There are so many questions in there, and I'll tell you, the one thing that's top of mind for me are comments out of the ECB where they've been indicating they're not going to begin the normalization process on raising rates until the end of next summer. So roughly a year from now, they're at minus four-tenths of a percent. That's abnormal by any definition. I actually want them out of our bond markets, raise rates to something that looks normal, stop buying our bonds and distorting the markets. And that is something that comes up in the conversations that we have with a lot of CIOs, because many of them are using their bond portfolios as assets matched against some sort of liability. 
And with yields as low as they've been for a long time, bonds have effectively lost a purpose they were designed for, which was to defease a liability. So, yeah, over time, they'd like to see higher bond yields and be able to invest at some sort of attractive yield. We all don't want it to happen at once because nobody's looking for a bond market crash, but we want the process to begin and we want the ECB to start the normalization process. We want the Bank of Japan to do something similar and we want them effectively to follow the path that the Fed has laid out where, as we start out by saying, they've been raising rates since December 2015. It's been the most painless tightening cycle that I've ever lived through, and I've been doing this for 37 years. If the ECB and the Bank of Japan can do something similar to that, then we'll have a bond market with attractive yields where our investors will be able to go into it and achieve whatever plan they've got. And I think that that's key. You know, in a lot of conversations that we're having, you have people that have almost dismissed bonds. And when they think about an environment of, you know, stock prices, which are elevated, fixed income yields, which are still near historic lows, they oftentimes ask us, you know, where is the role for bonds in my portfolio? And I think that you've laid out a case where getting back to a little bit more normal can help bonds re-engage within a broader asset allocation and solve a lot of those problems that they historically have. So maybe kind of wrapping everything up. We've talked about Fed policy, global monetary policy, opportunities, risks, high conviction ideas. What would be some things that you think investors should keep in mind as we move into 2019? Maybe a few opportunities and a few things that are on your radar as being worth watching as a potential signal that things could be headed in a not so positive direction. The two things that stand out to us still are how rich government bonds are. And if we look at developed market 10-year government bonds on a real basis, they're still around a 0% real yield, which is where they were 18 months ago. So put differently, although government bond yields have been rising for the last couple of years, all they've effectively done is match the increase in inflation. That's too rich. Historically, the real yield on 10-year developed market government bonds should be anywhere from 2 to 5%, pick your market. Once the central banks get out of those markets, you are going to see a normalization process. So that, to us, looks to be the most expensive place in the market that we're trying to avoid. The one that we talked about earlier, emerging market debt, is the one that's gone through the most painful adjustment. The crossover buyers have exited. Some of the structural buyers have exited. We're looking at currencies that look oversold. We're looking at real yields that look too high. And this is an opportunity for us to start scaling in. And beyond that, there are lots of parts of the credit market that look fine. So we're going to continue to hold on to our U.S. high yield positions and we'll continue to buy European bank debt. Great. Well, it sounds like even in a world where all assets are looking a bit richly valued, you guys are still finding things to do. So uh, thanks for taking the time to chat with us today. A pleasure. Thank you. Thank you for joining us today on the J.P. Morgan Center for Investment Excellence. CFA Institute members are encouraged to self-document their continuing professional development activities in their online CE tracker. If you found our insights useful, you can find more episodes on iTunes or on our website, recorded on October 16th, 2018. 
For the purposes of MIFID II, the JPM Market Insights and Portfolio Insights programs are marketing communications and are not in scope for any MIFID II and MIFIR requirements specifically related to investment research. Furthermore, the J.P. Morgan Asset Management Market Insights and Portfolio Insights programs, as non-independent research, have not been prepared in accordance with legal requirements designed to promote the independence of investment research, nor are they subject to any prohibition on dealing ahead of the dissemination of investment research. The views contained herein are not to be taken as advice or a recommendation to buy or sell any investment in any jurisdiction, nor is it a commitment from J.P. Morgan Asset Management or any of its subsidiaries to participate in any of the transactions mentioned herein. Any forecasts, figures, opinions, or investment techniques and strategies set out are for information purposes only, based on certain assumptions and current market conditions, and are subject to change without prior notice. All information presented herein is considered to be accurate at the time of production. This material does not contain sufficient information to support an investment decision, and it should not be relied upon by you in evaluating the merits of investing in any securities or products. In addition, users should make an independent assessment of the legal, regulatory, tax, credit, and accounting implications and determine, together with their own professional advisors, if any investment mentioned herein is believed to be suitable to their personal goals. Investors should ensure that they obtain all available relevant information before making any investment. It should be noted that investment involves risks. The value of investments and the income from them may fluctuate in accordance with market conditions and taxation agreements, and investors may not get back the full amount invested. Both past performance and yield are not a reliable indicator of current and future results. J.P. Morgan Asset Management is the brand for the asset management business of J.P. Morgan Chase & Company and its affiliates worldwide. This communication is issued by the following entities. In the United Kingdom, by J.P. Morgan Asset Management UK Limited, which is authorized and regulated by the Financial Conduct Authority. In other European jurisdictions, by J.P. Morgan Asset Management Europe, SARL. In Hong Kong, by JF Asset Management Limited, or JP Morgan Funds Asia Limited, or JP Morgan Asset Management Real Assets Asia Limited. In Singapore, by JP Morgan Asset Management Singapore Limited, Co Reg Number 197601586K, or JP Morgan Asset Management Real Assets Singapore Private Limited, Co Reg Number 201120355E. In Taiwan, by JP Morgan Asset Management Taiwan Limited, in Japan, by J.P. Morgan Asset Management Japan Limited, which is a member of the Investment Trusts Association, Japan, the Japan Investment Advisors Association, Type II Financial Instruments Firms Association, and the Japan Securities Dealers Association, and is regulated by the Financial Services Agency, Registration Number, Kanto Local Finance Bureau, Financial Instruments Firm, Number 330. In Korea, by J.P. Morgan Asset Management Korea Company Limited, in Australia, to wholesale clients only, as defined in Section 761A and 761G of the Corporations Act 2001, CTH, by J.P. Morgan Asset Management Australia Limited, ABN 551-438-32080, AFSL 376919. In Brazil, by Banco J.P. Morgan S.A. In Canada, for institutional clients' use only, by J.P. Morgan Asset Management Canada Incorporated and in the United States by J.P. Morgan Distribution Services Incorporated and J.P. Morgan Institutional Investments Incorporated, both members of FINRA and J.P. Morgan Investment Management Incorporated. In APAC, distribution is for Hong Kong, Taiwan, Japan, and Singapore. For all other countries in APAC, to intended recipients only. Copyright 2018, J.P. Morgan Chase & Company. All rights reserved.